Hello, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Thanks so much for being here. Um, a couple of things before we get going uh, that I wanted to address. Uh, one's kind of an announcement, one's a disclaimer. The, the announcement is the last couple of weeks, there have been um, a group of people who have who've been out here and either on our property or on the Curtis Steel lots, and they, they've been panhandling for money. Uh, it's, I, it, as far as we know, it's four people. They come every week in a van, um, pretty organized group. Uh, we we would ask y'all uh, to, to be polite always, but, but not to give them money. We, we have invited them uh, back to Grace Bible Church, both to services, but also uh, to, to try to help them and, and to provide some sort of assistance that would be more comprehensive than just giving money. And, uh, and they've, they've totally refused that. Um, it's, you know, we, we, we've just come to believe that it's, it's probably not in their best interest for us every week to give them a bunch of money that we don't really know what they're doing with it. So um, just wanted to let y'all know that. And if y'all could help us out in that regard, um, we would really appreciate it. The, the disclaimer that I have is that you're not going to think this is my best sermon, okay? Um, <laughs> and I'm right there with you. Uh, it's, it's not that it's, it's a bad sermon. It's just it's, you're not going to think it's my, my best sermon. And you might be like, well, why are you giving this sermon if you don't think it's, you know, my best sermon? And <clears throat> I think it's really important. That, that's why I'm giving it. I, I, I think the subject matter is, is significant and material and should shape how we live and can help us to, to glorify God more fully. So I, I'm, not, I'm not apologetic for what we're covering. I just don't think it's your biggest felt need. And, and, and some some real needs are more important than felt needs. But just, I've been praying for the last three or four days just that everyone here, as we jump around to a lot of different passages, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a technical sermon. I, I'm, I've been praying that people would be able to stick with it and, and really kind of dial in and by the Spirit's enablement as we study God's Word to, to be changed. So let's pray, but let's pray with those things in mind. Bow your heads with me. Father, it is actually so great to, to sing praises to you and, and for your son. And God, um, we adore you. We, we want to say that coming in. For, for those of us who have been privileged to know Jesus, that we just want to thank you again for sending him. We want to thank you again for um, sending him to die on a cross as a substitute to take the consequence of our sin that we might know you and your unconditional love and your mercy and all the other things that you have given us in Christ. Father, I pray that today as we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 and some other related passages that you would quicken our souls to understand and really appreciate and, and then ultimately apply the things that we are learning in our time together. Father, ultimately this would not be so that we are better but so that you are more glorified. And so help us in all of this, and I pray for your help, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a real basic question. What motivates your obedience in this world? Now, I want you to think about that real seriously. What motivates your obedience in this world? When you do things that are obedient to God, what's your motivation behind it? 
Is it gratitude for the, the grace that he has given you? Is it a, a realization that his Holy Spirit has made you a new creation in Christ? Are you looking forward to receiving rewards one day in heaven for your obedience? Like what, what is it that actually motivates you? When, you? when you're making that decision, you know, should I obey? Should I disobey God? You decide to obey. What's the thinking behind it? Last week we talked about having a heavenly perspective and, and how a heavenly perspective, like understanding that eternity awaits, it's a, it's a hopeful perspective and it actually shapes how we think about life on this earth. And again, heaven awaits. I mean, that, it, it's such an optimistic, hopeful disposition. Heaven awaits. Not only does heaven await, heaven is, is guaranteed for us. The indwelling Holy Spirit is an araban, an earnest, a deposit, guaranteeing that one day that we will go. And, and that which we will receive one day in heaven is, is far better than our current estate, marred as it is by sin. And so this is hard now, but heaven awaits. And it's, it's super optimistic. And, and I, I just want you to know that that disposition, that heavenly disposition that enables us to endure and persevere in this world, it also leads to some other things and that's what we're going to chase down today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. I'd like to read them for you. So, and so is un, it's, it's therefore. Therefore, we are always of good courage. Heaven awaits. The Holy Spirit is in earnest, a guarantee. Therefore, we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this heavenly perspective that we talked about in verses 1 through 5 actually gives us Two important things in our passage today. We covered them a little bit last week. We're going to go quickly through this. But the two important things that are for us today are courage and focus. We see a resulting courage in verses 6 and in 8. So we are always of good courage. The Holy Spirit guarantees that one day heaven will come. So we are always of good courage. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. It goes on and on. Courage, courage. We, if we understand what awaits us, if we believe in it, we will live courageously as Christians. We, we will not be conformers. We will live boldly for God's glory. That's what we're talking about. The second result, though, is focus. Focus on the things that God would have us focus on, verses 9 and 10. So whether we are away or at home, we make it our aim to please God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our aim is to please God, and ultimately we will give an account to that end. Now that's kind of what we're going to be talking about most of the day. We are going to stand before judgment seat, and we're going to give an account for what we have done in this life. Let's just start real basically. If we're going to give an account, we'd better figure out what questions God cares about. You know, like uh, some high school kids are about to go into, into their finals, and in order to study well, in order to, to prepare well, they're going to try to figure out 
what their teachers care about, right? Well, the day of judgment's a little bit like that. It's not exactly like that. We better figure out which questions God actually cares about. I'm going to give you a hint. God, when you get to the day of judgment, isn't going to ask how much money you made. It's just, he doesn't care. I, I get that a lot of us do care. It's not what God cares about. He, he, he's not going to ask, how much money did you make? Now, he might ask, how good a steward were you of the money that I gave you to take care of? That, that's a better question from God's perspective. I think we should start asking that question. We'll be better prepared for the day of judgment. Similarly, students, God is not going to ask you when you go to the day of judgment, what was your class rank? I get that your parents hate me. I get that they care what your class rank is. I don't think God cares. I, I just don't think he cares. Now, here's what he cares about. He, he might ask you, hey, did you live your life according to Colossians 3.23? Colossians 3.23 says, in whatever you do, do your work heartily. I broke that down. Heartily means with all your heart. In whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man. So as you go into finals, you don't go into finals worried about your class rank. God doesn't care about your class rank. You go into finals thinking, I am preparing to take final exams and I'm taking final exams ultimately so that I might glorify not my teachers, not my friends, not my parents, not even myself that I might say, oh, I made a better score than you did. I'm taking these exams that I might give back all that God has given me unto his glory. And that is true academically. That is true athletically. That is true socially. That is true professionally. That is true in every element of your life. That's why the text starts with, in whatever you do, do your work with all your heart as for the Lord rather than for man. You better figure out the right questions. Now, the text brings up the day of judgment. And I think the day of judgment honestly creates an unintended irony or at least an unintended tension. And here's what it is. Tell me if, if you agree with this. I think most of us who are Christians, I think most of the people in this room are Christians. Most of us who are Christians like are excited to be in the presence of Jesus. I, I don't think I'd get a lot of pushback on that. Like people are genuinely excited to, to go and be with Jesus in heaven one day. So that's, that's not the tension. The tension is we're excited to be with Jesus, but standing before him on the day of judgment scares the bejeebers out of us. Is that fair? Like we are on the one hand excited to go be with Jesus, but we are not excited about the day of judgment. Is, it, is that just me? Like if, if you're if you're okay with that, if that is not a tension, you should probably preach next week because I've been studying this all week and I'm still like, eh, it's a little bit nerve wracking. You know, like that, there's a tension there, a little bit of a tension. And I, I think the day of judgment is kind of like a, a snowy mountain peak that's shrouded in clouds and like there, there's some mystery to it and it, it seems intimidating and, and like we'd rather just kind of like pretend it doesn't exist, but Instead of that, today, what we're going to do is we're just going to ask some questions. We're going to start real basic, and, and we're going to talk about the day of judgment. And here's the first question, basic as we can get. What is God's aim on the day of judgment? Not, as, not what is your aim. What is God's aim on the day of judgment? What, what's he trying 
to do? My answer is this. He is trying to be just. He's trying, now, that's a little bit different. When I, when I say he is trying to be just, that's a little bit different than just demonstrating justice. Okay, let, let me explain the nuance there. I think it's important that we start with God is being just, not just trying to demonstrate justice. I think it's important that we understand that justice comes from the nature or the character of God. And here's why. If God isn't just, justice itself is nothing more than a social construct. It's just something that a group of people decided is is right and wrong, and they've, they've just labeled it justice. But if it comes from God's character, I think there's more gravitas, more weight. If, if God isn't just, justice is a social construct. And ultimately, what that means, if justice is a social con- construct, the, the downstream effect of that is good and bad kind of unravel. They kind of unravel. And l- let me explain what I mean by that. <clears throat> Is there an intrinsic, a universal good or bad? Or is it just what we feel? So I'll give you an illustration of this. Last week, my daughter was at Mod Pizza, having some pizzas, a rainstorm. She comes out. Her back passenger window has been smashed in. Her backpack has been grabbed. Her backpack contained a laptop computer and all of her notes for her whole semester as she is preparing for finals. And so the question I have is, how do we think about good and bad? Is good and bad a social construct and we get to determine what it is? And so, so like that thief, that thug, like did he violate my truth? Or did he violate truth? You see the point? Because the reality is, if, if, if Annie Kate up here or me or, or Mary, if, if we're frustrated with this thief, I think we're frustrated that this idea that, that something bad has happened, it's a universal application of the concept of good and bad, isn't it? In fact, every human emotion that we ever have in relationship to other people, whether you're angry with someone or, or deeply pleased with someone, it's based not on your truth, It's based on a universal truth. Like what you're saying when you're upset with a thug who breaks your window and steals your laptop is, that's not just wrong for me, that's just wrong. It's not my truth, it's an axiomatic truth, and I apply it to me, and I apply it to you, and I apply it universally, and that's why we have emotions. Every emotion we have is based on the notion that there are axiomatic truths that are either lived incongruence or that we violate every single time. And look, on this subject of justice, I, I get that we are criminals before the bar. We're, we're a little bit guilty. And, and so we don't love to think about justice. We, as criminals before the bar, are a lot more likely to think about mercy. And, and let me just say this, and this is I'm kind of impressed with myself for this one, okay? Like, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not that smart, and so I think this sounds smart. So if, if you're taking notes, say this is what Wes thought was smart. Mercy is an ontological parasite of justice. 
Okay, what does that mean? Ontos means being. Parasite means it, it derives its, its being, it, its existence off of something else. And, and so basically, you can't have mercy. Like we love mercy. You can't have mercy unless you also say that there is justice. That, that, that there is justice. Because in order for mercy to exist, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve, you also have to say there is something that we do deserve, and something that we do deserve means there's justice. Okay? So, so I'm all for mercy, but if you love mercy, you better love justice too, because one doesn't exist without the other. A few other things. The cross of Calvary is the greatest display of God's mercy and his justice that will ever exist. Okay, most religions, I, I think this is so unique about Christianity, most religions are pitting justice and mercy against themselves as a principle. And so that they'll say, well, God is somewhat just, but if we work hard, we can get close enough that he will compromise his justice and ex- extend a little bit mercy, and, and that's how we get to go to heaven. And we don't really know where we are in the pecking order, and so we hope we're close enough that he can give us a little bit of justice without, he's going to compromise his his justice for mercy and mercy for justice and and where do we stand beats me but we're going to keep trying that's most religions and god solved the riddle for us he did he solved the riddle for us because in the cross you have the ultimate display of justice when jesus who is without sin takes our sin as a willing substitute that god's justice might be fully extended and he dies a sinner's death as the ultimate sacrifice, ultimate justice displayed so that, so that we who deserved the consequence of sin, which is death, might receive God's mercy because justice has already been meted out. And with mercy comes the unconditional love of God, comes all of these other things that we love about the gospel. But there's no other place in religion or world history where justice and mercy are perfectly matched and they become friends in the cross of Christ. Let me say one more thing about this before we move on. It's, it's a little bit heavy. God is just. God is just. Therefore, since God is just, it's part of who he is, justice will be exacted for every sin that is ever committed in world history. Because God is just, justice will be exacted upon every sin through world history. And the wage of sin, the consequence of sin, is death. And so that justice is exacted either in the shedding of Christ's blood or the shedding of the blood of a sinner who rejects the provision that Christ has made on their behalf. But I promise you, every sin will see justice. And that's why we have to proclaim the gospel to all people. Bottom line, bottom line, we should be people who celebrate the cross. Now, I want to go from here to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And and the reason I'm going to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just so you know, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 talks about our works, and whether good or bad, being paid for. And that is a reference 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's a longer version, and so this will be a lead up so that we can understand a little bit more about the judgment day of God. I'm going to read you verses 10 through 17. Try to hang with me. Paul writes, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 17, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be become manifest for the day, and, and the day there is capitalized if you're looking at the ESV, and it's the day of judgment, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are the temple. Okay, so that, that's a lot and we're not going to cover it all, but, but here's, here's the point. God's aim is to hold Christians accountable to the purpose for which he recreated them. God's aim is to hold Christians accountable to the purpose for which he created them. And then it goes on to say, and this I think should help us, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. God dwells within us. And when it says you, it's, it's you plural. So a lot of people in American Christianity were very individualistic. We, we think, oh, I'm the temple of God. And so like, don't drink Coca-Cola or things like that. And, and, and you're like, eh, that's actually not a good understanding of this. You, plural, are the singular temple of God. The church gathered, not the church building, the, the people of God gathering together are the temple of God. Now, now, what does that mean? It means that we, as the gathered body of Christ, are, are the greatest manifestation of God's glory that exists today. That's what it means. That The temple existed so that Israel could go and be in the nearness and the presence of of God, that they might experience the Shekinah glory of God, that they might see the manifestation of God. We are now the temple of God. God dwells within us, and our job is to manifest or to declare his purposes. That's what it means. That's a tremendous honor. Now, all the rigorous language in verses 10 through 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, comes out of that noble kind of model. Like the, the, the rigorous language used in this text simply means that God will hold us accountable to be the temple of God, to, to manifest the glory of God. In fact, it says, if anyone tries to tear down the temple, what does that mean? If anyone is, is trying to be part of the temple but is unregenerate, like he, he, is, he is not trying to demonstrate the glory of God, he is, he's actually trying to do just the opposite. That person's not saved. I don't care if you're in a church building. You can be in a garage. That doesn't mean you're a car. Like, you're not a Christian. And, and that means, like, it's not going to go well for you on the day of judgment. It doesn't matter if you're in a church building. He ultimately is saying, I'm going to hold you accountable 
to glorify me. Those works that we do for self-glory, I can give a dynamic sermon. It's not going to be this sermon, but I can give you a dynamic sermon. And if I do it so that you will think I am neat, I am smart, I am funny, I am whatever, it won't stand up to Jesus' scrutiny on the day of judgment. Those types of sermons, those types of actions for self-glory will be consumed by fire. On the other hand, by the enablement, by the empowerment, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we actually can honor God in our actions, in our works. And those works that are enabled by the Holy Spirit, that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that actually are doing the right thing for the right reason unto the glory of God, those things will not only be celebrated, the text says, those things will be rewarded on the day of judgment. That's, that seems pretty neat. Here's, here's the bottom line application before we move on. Your works matter to God, and therefore they should matter to you. Like how you live matters to God, and therefore how you live should absolutely matter to you. Now, I want to be clear on this. I am not saying that God will judge your works means that you are saved by your works. That's not what I'm saying. If, if, if I've been close to that, I repent. I'm, I'm not saying that. I, I'm not at all saying that. Your works matter to God. They should matter to you. They are not the basis for your salvation. I, I, if you're confused on that, I'll spend the rest of the afternoon trying to explain that. I think it's critically important. Your works are not the basis for your salvation, but they are. Hear this. They are the evidence of your salvation, and they are God's intended outcome of your salvation. That's why when it says you're the temple of God, and if someone tries to destroy the temple, if someone is trying to undo the glory of God, they're, they're using the grace of God as a license to sin and, and doing stuff that is ignoble instead of noble under the purposes of God. God says that person will be judged and they will be destroyed, consumed by fire. That's, that's a big deal. So, are your works the basis for your salvation? Absolutely not. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But the grace that saves you is not alone. It, the grace that saves you enables you to glorify God, enables you to be the temple of God with all the other saints of God gathered together. And therefore, you get to manifest the glory of God. And that is celebrated and rewarded on the day of judgment. We've talked a little bit about rewards. I want to press into that because it's confusing. How does God want us to think about heavenly rewards? How, how does God want us to think about heavenly rewards? The reason I bring this up is because 1 Corinthians 3.14 speaks of rewards directly, and 2 Corinthians 5.10, which is our passage, says each one will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. And so that that sounds like rewards, and, and there's a lot of views on heavenly rewards. Like you've got the day of the judgment, and then you've got eternity, and what do we do with rewards after the day of judgment? Lots of views. Let me go through a couple. I think this is actually significant. Some people think that our rewards are, are crowns in heaven. You've, you've probably heard that. 
our rewards are, are crowns in heaven. And so there's five different types of crowns mentioned in the Bible. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 25, there's the victor's crown. You must run the race in such a way that you would receive the victor's crown. Contextually, the victor's crown is given to all who persevere, all who finish. So it's kind of like Little League Baseball. Everyone who finishes the season gets a trophy. It's, it's not like I'm going to get crown and the rest of you schleps are just going to have to look at me and I, you know, I'm going to have my crown and you're not going to have the crown and you know, it stinks to be you. That, that's not what's going on there, but that's the victor's crown. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 19 talks about a crown of boasting, which is interesting because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 said it's, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself so that no one should boast, and yet there's a crown of boasting here. The idea, I think, is that there is a heaven that awaits that is worth boasting in. It's not our boasting. It's where we're going that is really exciting and worth talking about. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 8, there is a crown of righteousness. James chapter 1 verse 12, there is the crown of life. First Peter chapter 5 verse 4, talking to elders, there's a crown of glory. So elders, you got that going for you. The idea that most people take all these crowns is that there is like these different crowns and the different crowns are given for, for different acts. So if, if you persevere through persecution, you get a certain type of crown and, and in heaven, you get to wear that crown. And so, you know, like stinks that it's hard today, but that's, that's the consequence. Like you get a crown in heaven forever. And, and so that's the idea that different crowns are given for different acts different types of obedience. Most of you have probably heard that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna poke at that a little bit, okay? That could be right, that's very common. There's a lot of really good scholarship that, that falls into that camp. I think there's some good scholarship that falls into the camp that I'm going to espouse. That does not mean that I am a good scholar. I just read people. <clears throat> Let me say this right off the bat. In all five instances of these different crowns, there's a very strong argument that the crowns represent our heavenly reward, not individualistic different components added to the heavenly reward. So the crown of life, the crown of boasting, the victor's crown is heaven. It's not a specific crown that we wear in heaven. It's not a specific or comparative aspect of the victory. It is the victory. Now, there's a good argument for that. Like, exegetically, I think I can defend that. More importantly, more importantly than that, here's what I want you to understand. I think this is really compelling. The only time we see crowns in heaven worn by elders, elders representing the people of God, it happens in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And what you see the elders representing the people of God, representing us, is they are taking crowns that they are wearing, and they are taking them off their head. And what are they doing? Anybody remember? Hint, there's a 1990s praise band with this name. What are they doing? They're casting their crowns, right? They're casting their crowns. Where are they casting their crowns? At the foot of Jesus. What does that represent, y'all? Think about this picture that we see of heaven. 
The people of God are casting crowns, crowns of righteousness, crowns of life, whatever the crown is, they're casting their crowns at the foot of Jesus. Meaning, anything that I have done, anything that Jeremy has done, anything that Hayden Podcotter has done, Mary Brazelton's done, I mean, Michael, Bob, Tim, Sally, Beth, whatever, anything that we have done that is laudable, we are taking that crown and we are casting it at the feet of Jesus. Meaning, He's the one who did it. He did it through us. It's by his Holy Spirit that we are able to do the right thing for the right reason. And he, not we, get the glory for that. I like that. I like that a lot. God gets all the glory for all the good things that we do because God enabled us. Before the grace of God, we were what? Slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. It is by God's enablement that we honor him, that we gain crowns, and that we cast crowns at the feet of Jesus. Now, I like the idea that heaven is the crown. If, if there are specific crowns, I like the idea that we are casting them at the feet of Jesus in Revelation 4. There's no other place where people are wearing crowns little caveat, Revelation chapter 9, there's someone with a face like man, but the body of a locust wearing a crown. Not sure what's going on there. I'm pretty sure it's not you, okay? <laughs> Nowhere else do we see anyone but God or Satan wearing a false crown, wearing a crown in the book of Revelation, a picture of heaven. Nowhere else. Some people, talking about rewards, will also contend that heaven is some sort of gradated experience. Like there's, there's levels of heaven. And, and it's the idea that, that some people are going to have big mansions in heaven, and, and then other people are going to have lesser mansions, mansions, something, I mean, whatever it is, like lesser versions of the greatness, okay? So it's all going to be great, but some people would say it's lesser and greater views of heaven based on how we operate, how we function today on earth. And, and so the idea is like we should do things that will please God because we'll get more and more crowns or more and bigger mansions, things like that. So there's some sort of gradated experience of heaven. I know that a lot of you have heard that. I'm going to say, and I, I don't believe this, Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you right now, I, I think this is the very best way you can back into legalism that exists in biblical interpretation, okay? And, and here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> is our experience rooted in heaven in the finished work of Jesus, or is it rooted in the stuff we do to earn greater stuff in heaven? That, that's really what we have to answer. That, that's the question. Is our experience of heaven rooted in Jesus' work or our own work? There's a lot of people who say, oh, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but my experience of heaven will be profoundly better if I do these things. <clears throat> Let me ask a few questions about that. I know that some of you are familiar with that. Let me just let me poke around a little bit. 
Wouldn't people in a lower level of heaven, people who, who got in kind of with their, their coattails singed a little bit, they, they live in shanty mansions versus like giant mansions, wouldn't people in a lower level of heaven experience some sort of sadness or regret when, when they looked at other people who had more crowns or bigger mansions? Like, isn't that easy to at least imagine? Right? Like, you know, I love my house, but, but doggone it, you know, like, you know, Lucas has a bigger house, or, man, I, I've, got, I've got eight crowns, and that makes me feel good when I look at Daniel, because Daniel's only got two crowns, but Hayden Potgotter's got 27 crowns. Like, I mean, the guy is so godly, and like, yeah, I mean, you get it? Because Revelation 21, verse 4 says there's, there's no more tears, there's no regret, there's None of that. And so how are we not comparative and some people falling on the wrong side of comparison and having regret if, if there's no more regret or sadness or anything like that in heaven? Now look, here's what I want you to understand. Theologians who believe in a gradated form of heaven where there's lesser and higher views of heaven or experiences of heaven, they have gotten out ahead of the fact that this comparative or this ranked heaven is going to be problematic. They, they've intuited the problem and they, they've postulated something that is totally absent from Scripture. But it, it's just their logical end around on this problem. They have postulated that people won't be conscious of the gradation. So, I might live in a giant mansion, but you might live in a giant, giant mansion, but I'm not really going to be aware that your experience of heaven is greater than my experience of heaven, so we're all going to be happy. I understand that. Let me ask one more question there. If gradations in heaven exist to motivate greater earthly works, so if the gradation, like, hey, if you do this, this is the carrot, you're going to get a bigger mansion. Don't you want a bigger mansion? If, if that is actually why gradations in heaven exist to motivate greater works, greater earthly works, why would God make the gradations imperceivable? Because that's what you're saying he does. You're not going to really be aware that different people have different amounts of crowns. And by the way, who can't count crowns? Or, the, you know, the house is going to be bigger or littler. Like, if, if the whole idea of crowns in heaven or mansions in heaven are, are based on gradation and, and it, it's supposed to motivate us today, well, then you can't say that we're going to be unaware of them tomorrow. It, it falls in on itself. It, it doesn't make any sense. Let's, let's finish up by looking at a parable in Matthew chapter 20. Now, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 20, I want you to realize that Matthew chapter 20 parable starts by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Okay, so we're definitely talking about heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like the master of of a house. I'm not going to read all of it, but the master of the house, this is verse 20, verse 1, went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into the vineyard. And going about on, out about the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace and he hired them. So he, he hired some people right at the beginning of the day, one denarius. And he, he hires some people in the third hour of the day and he says, hey, come to work for me, I'll pay you what is fair. And then he, he does 
another hiring at the sixth hour, another hiring at the ninth hour, and finally the last, how, the last hiring was at the eleventh hour. It's a 12-hour workday. So the people hired in the eleventh hour are only working for one hour. And, and the master just said, I'm going to pay you whatever's fair. Trust me. You pick it up in like verse 9. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came to be paid, each of them received a denarius. That's what was promised to the people who were hired in the first hour. Now, when those hired in the first hour came, they thought that they would receive more because the people hired in the eleventh hour received what they were promised. And so, like, it should be a lot more, right? That's what you'd think. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat? But the master of the house replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Not going to cover it all. Let's just make a couple of points. People did unequal amounts of work, but they all received the same pay. Is that fair? So that's what the parable says. People did unequal amounts of work, but received the same pay. Less deserving people were treated incredibly generously. Everyone received the same reward, even though some people didn't do near as much work as other people. It doesn't seem fair, does it? The kingdom of God, heaven, isn't based on fair. Here's the point. Reward in heaven isn't tethered to the labor of the worker. I get that that's how the world works. That's not how heaven works. Reward isn't tethered to the labor of the worker, but to the generosity of the master. I don't think you should spend a lot of time doing things on earth for heavenly self-serving reasons. I think heaven is the reward. And I think if there are crowns given to us, we will cast them at the feet of Jesus. Now look, I'm going to be honest with you. I could be wrong on this. Some really smart people disagree with me. Some really smart people agree with me. I'm not really smart. I'm just picking a side and going with it. I could be wrong on this. But if I'm wrong, I'll be casting crowns at Jesus' feet rather than trying to stack them up on my head for eternity. I'd rather be wrong there. If I'm wrong on this, I'll be wrong by placing the experiential goodness of heaven wholly on the finished work of Jesus so that my life on earth is motivated by gratitude to Jesus rather than a slick investment strategy by which I make myself rich in heaven. That seems strange to me. So if I'm wrong, and I could be wrong, I think I'll be wrong for the right reasons. 
And that's got to count for something. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray as we think about heavenly rewards, whether people agree with me or not on this, I, I pray that even the, the contemplation of this would, would draw our attention to the work of Jesus and the certainty of heaven that we all have based in what he has done. I pray that we would sit there. I pray that we would rejoice there. I pray that we would celebrate the goodness of your grace which has defined for us eternity. Father, I pray that our hearts in this world would be pure. I pray, God, that we would not serve for self-oriented reasons, but based in gratitude and in the joy of our salvation, we would live courageous lives, knowing that your son Jesus has made a way for us and the way is sure. We pray these things in his name. Amen.